Hey there, this is Mike Stanzik. I'm the teaching pastor at Trinity Community Church in Libertyville, Illinois. If I sound a little bit different than I usually do on, on one of these sermon podcasts, it's because I'm actually not in front of the congregation. I'm not behind the pulpit. I'm actually alone in my office uh, at my desk. We had an unforeseen technical thing take place with with this sermon and, and one other in, in January 2020. And so what I'm doing is I've got the, the manuscript for the sermon here with me, and I'm going to just sort of uh, walk through the sermon. It'll be in, in more of a conversational tone, you know, so there'll be considerably less shouting. I can't promise there'll be no shouting, but considerably less and uh, maybe a little bit more stuttering. In any case, um, I, I hope that it'll be edifying to you that, that through this recording, the, the Spirit of the Lord would, would bring his his word to bear on your life and that it would uh, result in praise, that uh, it would result in, in your life being even more lived for the glory of God and the life of the world. So I'm going to jump right in. This is the, the sermon for the final Sunday in the Advent, the 2019 Advent series, and it's, it's covering the, the Song of the Suffering Servants. That starts in Isaiah 52, 13, and goes through the entirety of chapter 53. Here's where I think it'd be helpful to get started. When the angels appear in Bethlehem, they announce the coming of Christ the Lord. So Christ is sort of the Greek way of saying Messiah. They announce that the coming of, of Messiah the Lord, Christ the Lord. And they say that Messiah's coming is good news of great joy. They say that all people, all peoples all over the world, have a reason to hope, a reason not to despair, because Messiah has been born. It's good news of great joy. And, and hopefully it's become a little bit clear over the course of, of this Advent series why it is such good news. So here's just three reasons that we've encountered. We've been walking through sort of prophecies from the, the Hebrew scriptures that have to do with Messiah. So here's three reasons that we've seen. So first off, the you know Messiah is going to be a king of David's line, and he's going to rule God's people for good. So he's going to rule God's people for good. Secondly, he's going to reestablish God's people before him. He's going to reestablish Israel, reestablish God's people, and he's going to be a light to the nations. The third thing, a light to the nations, and so we see that consistently through a lot of the the passages that we've walked through in the series. And the one question that's largely left unanswered by the prophets is this, how is he going to do it? How is he going to do it? And so this, this question, you know, has come up before in, in, you know, different passages from, from Isaiah and others, you know, how is he actually going to, to do all these things? What's that, what's that actually going to look like? And so I think one of the, the, the helpful things for us to do will be actually to, to jump into, um, sort of the, the back half of Isaiah 52 and and take a look. And, and, and kind of as a segue into that, it's really interesting that that line that the angels have when they appear before the shepherds, you know, many of us probably hear it in the voice of, of Linus from the Charlie Brown special. It's interesting. They say it's good news of great joy, and that's actually a quote. So it's actually a quote from a passage in the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah 52, Um where the writer is preaching to God's people, and for a long time they've rejected God's purpose for them. They've, they've compromised their love for God. They've compromised their love for other people. And functionally what that, functionally what that meant is that they, they were rejecting what God had saved them for. So he had brought them out of slavery in order to, to be his people, right? To, to be a, a people who would practice his way and, and be devoted to him. And they had, they had rejected that by, by failing to love him and failing to love people. And so what happens is what Cody had described last week. God sends his people into exile. You got to imagine what it must have been like to live in exile. So for, for one thing, the, the people of Israel went from their whole lives being ordered around God, right? Everything about their lives were ordered around God. And that was true, even though they weren't necessarily living by his way. They still attended temple, right? They still practiced the feast days. They still made sacrifices. So they, they kind of were going through the motions. Their affections were misplaced. They didn't live consistently with their faith. But 
their world was still, it's still sort of orbited around it, if that makes sense. So everywhere they went, their world, their culture reinforced that Yahweh was God, that he was for them and not against them. Their faith felt at home. So their faith felt at home is sort of what I'm trying to describe is that, that, that just being where they are, their faith felt plausible. It felt at home. But in exile, all that changes. Okay, so exile makes you question everything. So you're, you're, these, these folks are being taken out of Israel and into Babylon, which is just this giant, hugely powerful empire. What exile does is it forces you into a world where faith in God does not feel at home. The world around you does not make your faith feel plausible. Even if your faith is entirely reasonable, the world around you makes it feel implausible. It puts you at odds with the world around you. Exile presents you with successful, powerful people, and, and they don't even necessarily hate your faith. They just find it irrelevant. They find it trivial. They find it too local. The empire determines reality. And so you got to imagine that these exiles from Israel, they're under that kind of a situation. And, and what, what, they, what would have happened is, you know, they, they would have gone on to, to, you know, have families in exile. And so the second generation, a, a generation comes up entirely under exile. So they don't even know what it was like for faith in Yahweh to feel at home. And said so they're growing up under the rule of Babylon. And so many of them are getting seduced away, right? Because the world around them makes their faith feel not at home. So they're being seduced away. And many of them would have compromised, you know, maybe kept their faith, but sort of compromised in ways that, that maybe they weren't even able to admit. After all, you, you got to do what you got to do to flourish. And it would get to a point where, you, where 5, 10, 20 40 years have gone by, a generation is dying, we're still in exile. It would get to, to the point where, where folks would start to wonder, is God ever coming to us again? Is restoration ever going to happen? Will the world feel like home for us again one day? And so it's around this time, it's around this time of exile that, that most of our prophecies of Messiah start to emerge. That's where many of the Messiah writings start, either before, during, or after this exile. So these prophecies emerged during a season of just desperately waiting for God to act. They came out of the season of wondering if he ever will. The exile experience is the experience of just dying to see God do something. Exiles are dying to see God demonstrate that he loves them, and that he really is king over this confusing world. To the exiles in Babylon, Isaiah gives this image. He describes, I'm in verse 7 of chapter 52, so this is, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm setting the stage for us as we, as we get into the, the final servant song. So in verse 7, he describes this messenger coming over the hills toward the ruins of Jerusalem. And the messenger is shouting. And he's shouting the news that, that God's enemies have not overcome. God has not been defeated. He has not forgotten them. But instead, something has taken place that is good news. Something has taken place to show that God reigns. So, so here's the quote. This is verses 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Important image. We're going to come back to that. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
And so you'll notice that as as I was reading through that, that all three of the things that Messiah does show up right there. So you see the establishment of God's reign. That's what the messenger is is announcing. He's he's announcing your God reigns. You see God's people being called back together. That's you know the the waste places of Jerusalem sort of represent that that in the poem. That's verses eight and nine. And then and then we even see the theme of a light going out to the nations of of God being revealed to the nations. It says that that the salvation of our God go to the ends of the earth. So God reigning, his people being brought back to him, and a light going out to the world. All, all stuff that Messiah does. There's good news of, of, of happiness, right? That's, that's how it's de- described in, in, the, in the text, that, that the, man, the, the, the person on the mountains publishes peace. He brings good news of great joy, which could also be translated good, he says good news of happiness. That could be translated good news of great joy. And so that's actually the quote. That's, that's what the angels are talking about in, in, in the announcement of the birth of Christ. Right, so this is a Christmas passage. This is Isaiah fifty-two is a Christmas passage. It's it's you know the angels quote this. Now how's he going to do it? Now how's he going to do it? That's sort of our question today. The answer is going to going to be in 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 the ending of, of chapter fifty-two and in all of chapter fifty-three. It's a very famous passage. It's called the Song of the Suffering Servant, and it's it's you know, this passage right in the middle of the prophets that describes exactly how God is going to save the world, exactly how God is going to bring about his reign, exactly how God is going to bring a people back to him, exactly how God is going to bring a light to the nations. So let's take a look. We'll walk through the passage and, and I'll, I'll share most of my reflections at the end. So first, How's God going to do it? He's going to do it through his servant. So if you were here for the first Sunday of Advent, well, if you weren't, well, I, I really encourage you to go back and, and listen because some of the some of the information there was was important to the rest of the, the series. But if you were there, you'll you remember that we talked through a, a couple of what's called the servant songs. We saw how this figure emerges that, that sort of stands in for the nation of Israel. The servant is sort of a metaphor for the ideal Israel. Israel as they should have been, God's people as they should be. Now here's the thing that we saw in that first sermon is that, you know, the servant shows up and he's, you know, he's Israel. He's, he's the nation. But as more and more servant songs come up, it becomes harder and harder to think of the servant as the whole nation. So, so in other words, the servant ends up having to be an individual right? You end up having to think of the servant as an individual, as one person standing in for all God's people. And so that's something to remember as we walk into this. And so in verse 13 of chapter 52, passage begins, it's another servant song. In fact, it even begins the same way as a previous servant song. It starts with, behold my servant, right? So the servant is walking back on stage. And this time, finally, we're about to see what it is that the servant is actually going to do to bring about God's will. We know he's great. We, we know he's kind of the vehicle for God's salvation, but how's he going to do it? So we got that answer now. So here, here's, I think, a helpful way of thinking about verses 13 through 15. If you've ever been to a musical or an opera or something along those lines, then you've probably heard what's called an overture. And usually an overture comes in right when the lights go down. Everyone's seated, lights go down, but the real content of the performance hasn't started yet. And a lot of times what the the overture does is it'll play small bits of the music that's going to show up in the actual performance. So it kind of gives a little glimpse of the musical themes. It gives a glimpse of the themes of of the performance so that you can be alert for them later on. So it kind of gives you a reason to be curious. It gives you a reason to be curious. The opening stanza of this poem is kind of like that. It's kind of like a poetic overture. So we're being given a reason to be curious. We're being introduced to the themes of the poem so we can be alert for them. And here's what the overture tells us that this song is going to be about. It's going to be about the victory of the servant. That's number one. Number two, the victory of the servant is not going to look like victory. It's going to look like defeat. But number three, he's going to be glorified in the end. So here's what it says. I'll read the whole thing, but I'm going to focus on verse 13 first. So behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And, and that word sprinkle, I think it, it ought to be actually translated startle. So, so shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So that's the passage. I want to focus for, for a second on, on verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He should be high and, and lifted up and shall be exalted. So here we have God speaking. God is once again presenting his servant to the world. And he says this really striking phrase, that the servant will be high and lifted up. Here's why that's interesting. Typically, in, in Hebrew poetry, when that phrase is used, it's used to describe God in his glory. So already, the, the this servant song opens in all our categories are just being blown up. Suddenly the servant walks onto the stage. Now he's not only an individual, but he's an individual who, who is going to be worshipped. He's going to accomplish his mission and the result is going to be worship going to the servant. So already all our categories are getting blown up. And we're only into the first line, right? So the servant's going to have victory. But then suddenly it says that the servant is marred, right? He's marred. So he's, he's brutally beaten beyond recognition. So the way the servant is going to accomplish his mission is going to have something to do with suffering. The servant's victory is going to look like defeat. And it will be exactly this very unexpected kind of victory, a victory that looks like defeat, that will startle the nations. Again, I think that word that the ESV translates sprinkle, that's probably better translated startle. So the servant's defeat will turn out to be his victory, and when people come to recognize that, it's going to be very startling, striking, right? So that's kind of the overture to the poem. The servant steps back on stage. God's going to rescue the world through him. So it, this thing begins with the witnesses asking, who's going to believe that, right? So now we're into, into the second part. So first, God is going to save the world through a servant, but now he's, he's going to do it through a servant who suffers. And this is one of the coolest features of this poem, that the speaker actually changes at the beginning of chapter 53. So this is a, a typical thing that you, you run into in, in poetry, you know, when a, when a poet is writing a poem, the author is not always the speaker, right? So, so, you know, folks will make a distinction between the author, you know, the guy who actually punched this poem into a typewriter or whatever, it, you know, a Word document. I don't know how it's done. Um, you know, so there's the author... But then there's also the speaker. So the speaker might not be the author. The speaker in a poem could be any any voice that the author is kind of embodying. And Hebrew Hebrew poetry was just as sophisticated as, as much of our poetry. They were totally familiar with this way of writing poetry. And so one of the coolest features of, of the Song of the Suffering Servant is that the speaker changes. So it opens with God presenting his servant, and then the speaker changes. It goes from God as the speaker to a group of witnesses. So in other words, it goes from God saying, behold, to a group of beholders. And what's really interesting, too, is that suddenly things shift into the past tense. That's not to say that, that Isaiah is writing about stuff that has already happened. Instead, it, it's, a, it's a poetic device. So what he's doing is he's making it as though the, uh, the witnesses are, are informing you the reader of what has taken place, right? So they're trying to describe to describe to you what took place. So here's how it starts. This is the the opening. I think it's a really gripping opening for the the witnesses. They say, "Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" So the witnesses are asking, "Who's going to believe this?" Basically, but the poem starts with a sense of like, "Man." You're never going to believe what we're about to tell you. What is about to come is going to challenge all expectations. God is going to come through for his people, but the way he does will seem so insignificant, so weak on the face of it. So the witnesses ask, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right, so this is the, the image that I wanted us to, to come back to. So 
It's an image that shows up a lot in Isaiah. You know, the, the arm of the Lord being revealed. And it's sort of like God is rolling up his sleeves. It's like, he, or, or really, it's like he's throwing off a cloak to either work or to fight. When Isaiah talks about the arm of the Lord being bared, put forth, etc., what he's referring to are acts of God in history. He's referring to acts of God in history. When God moves decisively in history, you know, that's him bearing his arm. So in the first half of Isaiah, this image comes up a lot, but it's almost always through judgment. So when God bears his arm, it's to judge. Uh, so for instance, early on in Isaiah, there's this really chilling passage where, where God is announcing different kinds of judgment on Israel. And, and Isaiah is describing all these things, coming down on God's people. And, and so you'll have a, a stanza of judgment, and the last line of each stanza is, and his hand is stretched out still. Right, so there's this repetition of judgment, 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 and his hand is stretched out still. More judgment, and his hand is stretched out still. More judgment, and his hand is stretched out still. And so it gives the the reader this like growing sense of, of, uh, you know, just a sense of anxiety and and like, man, uh, take back your arm, right? Take back your hand. Don't don't bear your arm anymore. So it's it's that God is is acting decisively in history, in in a way that is frightening. Uh, bad things just keep coming and coming. So it's uh, God acting in history. He's demonstrating his kingdom, but he's doing it in a way that that's frightful. Now, in the second half of Isaiah, things change for the most part. You know, I, Israel has now been taken into exile. And suddenly, you get more images of God bearing his arm, but he's doing it to save, or at least most of the time in the, in the second half. It's God coming through for, for hope, for restoration, so, for instance, in chapter 50, God speaks to the despair of Israel, and he says, is my hand shortened that, that I can't redeem? Right, right. In, in other words, like, if I brought about all these judgments, can, can I not bring about your redemption? Is, is my hand shortened? Yeah, in chapter 51, you get it again. He, he says, the coastlands, the nations, hope for me. For my arm, they wait. So again, it's this, it's this image of people hoping, waiting for God to do something in history that will restore, that will change things. And finally, in the poem from, from chapter 52 that I read at the beginning, we see it again, right? But, but that time, the waiting is over in, in, in that, that, that sort of intro passage that I, that I had read at the beginning, the one that the angels quote from. God bears his holy arm, but he's doing it to the ends of the earth, and they're going to see the salvation of God, right? So this is God bearing his holy arm for salvation, and the whole world is waiting for it, right? Um, and in that, by, by that time, Isaiah is now writing as though the wait is over. And then obviously the, the payoff ends up seeming really anticlimactic, because now you have these witnesses and they're saying, well, hey, the, the, the Lord has revealed his arm, right? He's acted for salvation. That little intro passage from 52, 7 through 10, that, well, that's been fulfilled. But who, who's noticed? Who's seen it? God has acted decisively in history, but, but what kind of person is it going to be that can actually recognize it for what it is? The salvation of God has arrived. That's been largely looked over. Why? Well, the reason why is because it came through... A, a man who seemed very forgettable. Someone who didn't look like what we'd expect salvation to look like. It came through someone with no majesty, no beauty, someone with no credentials, someone with no connections. He had no signs of successfulness, no leadership promise, no marketing strategy, no assertiveness. Folks pass over him as easily as they step over an exposed root in the middle of the woods. And on top of it all, He's sad. He's a man burdened by grief. See, in our culture, happiness sells. So we've got Instagram influencers that smile into a 4K camera phone. They pitch a product that can you, you know, they can make you this happy too. Like so, spiritualities of of all different kinds, you know, sort of vie for our attention, and they always come to us with smiles. And kind of to our shame, it happens in the church. So you should believe this. You should live by this. You should attend here. You should go to this cause. You should listen to me. And as proof that I've really got the answer, look how happy I am. 
right? How fulfilled. You could be too. But God's salvation didn't come to us with a smile. It didn't come to us through some untouchable, charismatic leader. It came to us through a nobody. The glorious servant of Yahweh that we've been hearing about turns out to be some beaten down misfit. So how can someone so insignificant, so crushed by sadness, really turn out to be the Lord's salvation? We tend to avoid sadness. We're afraid another person's sadness may be too much for us to handle. We're afraid that if we identify with rejection that we might become rejected too. Maybe there's even like a superstitious thing about it where we somehow think like, oh man, like sadness is contagious or something from the outside, sometimes it looks like the ethics of a high school cafeteria just dying real hard, you know? And I think that that's why it says that the servant is someone from whom men hide their faces. We're much more comfortable saying that whatever grief someone is carrying, they must deserve to carry it, right? It's theirs to carry. You know, if if if, if they, if someone's sad, that's because it's, it's kind of their sadness, right? So it's it's their grief. Does that make sense? It's, it's their grief. They've got to carry it. And that's the big reversal that, that, that comes across in this song. So not only is, is God going to save the world through a servant and a servant who suffers, but he's going to save the world through a servant who suffers for us. So we're most comfortable saying that if someone is suffering... It must be that they deserve it. Okay, it's their, it's their sorrow to carry. But here we realize that this servant that we've written off, he turns out to be carrying not his sorrow, but ours. So I, I didn't read all the way through those first three, cha- uh, th- first three verses. So I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to read verses four through six just to, to you know, I don't want to assume they have a Bible open in front of you. You might be driving in a car, so I'll, I'll read those verses. So who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So that's what I was talking about, a a forgettable, sad man. He was despised and rejected by men, a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And here, here, here it comes, this idea of him suffering for us. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Somehow the servant stands in for all people. God's salvation does not come through for us like a helicopter dropping supplies and then taking off. His salvation comes for us like a man giving us the last of his food, even though we were the ones who forgot to ration. It comes to us like someone giving up their spot on the lifeboat, even though we were the ones who didn't believe the ship was sinking. The servant stands in for us and says, Let what is said of them be said of me instead. Let me be called adulterer. Let me be called a drunk. Let me be called the pervert, narcissist, racist, child abuser, womanizer, killer, glutton, miser. Let it be said that I was apathetic to the poor, that I resented my family, that I used people as a means and not an end. Let it be said that I worshipped falsely, that I never cared about anyone except myself, that I ignored the weak, that I looked for popularity, that I acted the fool, and that I did it all willingly and knowingly. The servant stands in for us. And then he's wounded for our transgressions. He, he redirects the justice of God that is against us, and he absorbs it himself. And all the while, as he's undergoing all that pain, as the servant is suffering, 
he's observed by these witnesses. And they're saying that they esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. In other words, people are looking at him at, at, at his suffering, and they're saying, in their heads, they're saying, well, he's getting his, right? This is what he deserved. They look at his suffering, and they say he's getting what was coming to him. And that's the great scandal of this passage. The truth is not that the servant gets what was coming to him. He gets what was coming to us. Essentially, he, 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 he's, he's acting as, as what was called a guilt offering. Okay, a, a guilt offering. In fact, that's literally what he's called at the end of the song. He's called a guilt offering. In the nation of Israel, there's a practice of taking a lamb who would represent a person, and that lamb would be, t- would be taken to the tabernacle or, or the temple, uh, depending on where you are in Israel's history. And one of the presiding priests there, they'd be there to, to receive the worshiper and, and they'd take the lamb, the lamb and they'd lay, he, you know, he'd lay his hands on the lamb and there would be this moment where all the wrongs that that person had committed would be attributed to the lamb. Okay, so that the symbol would be that the lamb is sort of being given the sins and then the lamb would be killed and burned. It was this very powerful image of, of the rightful justice of God being absorbed by a creature who, who, who never had anything to do with those sins. But in that moment stood in solidarity with the, with the lowest stuff of, of that person. It stood in solidarity with the lowest stuff of that person, and it suffered for them. And it was done so that the, that the sin of that person would not have the final word on their life. And instead, they would remain at peace with their creator. And so the servant does that and, and does it willingly. So God's going to save the world through a servant, a servant who suffers, and a servant who suffers for us. And, and then fourthly, he suffers for us willingly. So this is verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and, and, and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. In other words, that, that's what his generation thought of him. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. So, so the servant uh, song that we're that we're looking at today starts with the line, "My servant shall act wisely." Okay, that was if you remember that was the that was the first line. It's Isaiah fifty two thirteen. The first line of the song of the suffering servant is that, "Behold, my servant shall act wisely." So, what's that about, right? What's what's that talking about? Well, we have to remember that for, for many chapters, Isaiah has been building up this figure of the servant. I know this might sound irrelevant because I just read verses 7 through 9, but, but this is relevant. We've got to jump back to the beginning of the song to, to feel the, the gut punch of, of this part of the, the poem. So, so remember, remember that for many chapters, Isaiah has been building up this figure of the servant. And he's showing us that God's plan of redemption is going to be accomplished by, by him, by the servant. The hope of the world is on his shoulders. Everything depends on him. And so when God invites the reader to, to behold, to observe the servant, what he's doing is he's really inviting us to behold the one who will accomplish the mission, who will save the world, right? The servant's going to do exactly what he needs to do to make sure that God's plan for redemption is not thwarted. He's going to act wisely. He's going to do it what, he, what needs to be done. The servant will, will not be tempted away. He will not get distracted. He will not grow weary. He won't get discouraged. He won't find something better to do. What we're being asked to do is to see all this suffering of the servant as something he has strategized for. All this, all this suffering is something the servant has strategized for. It's not that someone is getting the better of him. The suffering he's facing isn't getting the better of him he's acting wisely this is mind-boggling to me right and to me it bring, it instantly brings to mind i was going to say most of my reflections to, to the end but i'll just you know it brings to mind jesus and the triumphal entry where he busts into jerusalem followed by a parade of galileans 
and then makes the beeline to the temple and starts flipping tables. He's, he's, he's strategizing for his suffering. The servant is strategizing toward his own death. He's setting his face toward his own death. He's making sure that circumstances are exactly what they need to be so that he will suffer and die in exactly the right way as a righteous sacrifice for people who think he's getting his. This is not some unwilling, unsuspecting victim that's being described here in, in Isaiah 53. He's not just some guy who happened to get the short straw. It's not even like things get out of hand and now he's like adapting so he can at least die feeling like there's a, a purpose to his death, right? Like, all right, fine, you can you can kill me, but you can't take my dignity. It's not even one of the, it's not even like that. This is someone who from square one has been intentionally plotting his movements, not saying too much here, saying just enough there, provoking when he needs to, retreating when he needs to. And, and now here at the end, he humbles himself to every humiliation because it is all part of the strategy. If he deviates, if he defends himself, if, if he if he tries to, uh, you know, if he tries to just get like a little bit of a verbal pot shot in just to prove that he's innocent, the mission could fail. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. He can't afford to lose. He's strategizing for his own death. This is willing suffering. And things play out exactly as he wanted. He goes before his killers as a quiet lamb. He is a victim taken by oppression and judgment. So he's, he's judged worthy of his death and never tries to stop it. And as far as his generation is concerned, as far as the onlookers are concerned, it's just one less deviant to worry about. And the line there at the end is pretty ambiguous. Most translators do their best and are still confused. So, you know, I'm not going to fare any better because I'm not an expert in, in Hebrew, obviously. Uh, you know, so the exact language there about, you know, uh, making his grave with the wicked and... and with the rich man in his death, it, it, it's very ambiguous language. But here's what you know: ex, experts are also are basically all agreed that the last stanza there, the the verse verse nine, is basically there to say that that somehow he dies associated with both the wicked and the rich. Okay, so the servant in his death, he he, he somehow gets associated with both the wicked and the rich. That as he dies, people think of him as, as just another wicked person, but somehow the wicked and the rich are involved. Okay. All right, so th th here's my final point. So God will save the world through a servant who suffers for us willingly and is exalted for it, and as a result is exalted for it. So here's verses 10 through 12. This is the ending of the song. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the servant goes through all this, all this injustice. And again, we're, we're reminded that everything described has been God's plan, his will. And then suddenly we're given all these images of triumph. And almost none of these make sense in a way because the servant's supposed to be dead. Right? So... So, you know, it says the servant will see his offspring, that his days will be prolonged. He'll witness the results of his sacrifice. In other words, so he's going to witness the results of what he's done, be satisfied. He's going to receive riches and honor, a portion with the many, the spoil of the strong. The, the really striking one is where God's reign, God's will, is handed over to him. It's such a quick phrase. It's in verse 10. It's so quick you're going to miss it. But it says the will of the Lord. So God's very rule. The, the rule of God's kingdom will prosper in his hand. It kind of leaves you scratching your head. How is the servant, right, who's supposed to be dead, how is the servant going to superintend the kingdom of God? 
So it's all this glory and this hope and exaltation. And of course, why all the commotion? Why the celebration? Because the servant has finally brought about the salvation all of us have been waiting for. Right? The servant has brought about good news of great joy. The plan of God that began with the call of Abram 4,000 years prior is brought to fruition. And so there's just, you know, there's a huge commotion. There's a big celebration. The servant has succeeded, which means that God has made the decisive move against the deepest problem at humanity's heart. Okay, so that's, that's the song. That's the song of the suffering servant. I'm going to share some insights, uh, just some, some reflections. So, so for years, there's actually been a lot of, uh, you know, going back and forth, a lot of conjecture about the identity of the servant. We've, t we've talked about this a little bit, but I'll go into this a, a little bit more detail about sort of the, the disagreements that have taken place. So there are many, many to this day who believe that the servant is not an individual and what they would what they would want to say is that kind of the, the, those subtle poetic cues that we talked about, um, especially in the first in the first sermon of the series, they would want to say that those that, that kind of subtle stuff, um, you know, they, they would want to say that's reading into it too much, right? And so they, they would want to say just just let's just make things simple, okay? Uh, let's let's not get too into the poetry and uh, you know pick it apart like that. Let's just assume the servant is Israel. So it's not a representative of Israel. It's not an individual. It's the nation. Now, here's the thing about that interpretation. It ends up not working very well once you get to Isaiah 53. The reason why is because the, the whole point of the passage is that the servant is suffering unjustly. That's the whole point. So everything rides on that. The servant is suffering unjustly. But everywhere you look throughout the Hebrew scriptures, so what we often call the Old Testament, Israel is never seen as an unjust sufferer. You know, <laughs> their, their suffering is, is seen as just. They're, they're not seen as like a noble sufferer who can somehow save the world through their suffering. Those categories are totally foreign. Okay. So it, it's got to be an individual. So then another another group will say, okay, fine, yeah, it's an individual, but but let's not call him a representative necessarily. Okay, so they, they want to say that this passage was, was written by disciples of Isaiah, which that's actually very, very possible. You know, the, the back half of Isaiah could have been written by a community of his disciples or, or two other prophets. That That's very probable. And so they take that and, and they run with it, right? And they, they say... Okay, yeah, so this is written by disciples of Isaiah, and they have witnessed the death of Isaiah, okay? Or maybe some other prophet who was, who was a really good man. But when Isaiah was, or when, when Israel was, was brought into exile, that prophet, you know, this good man, is kind of collateral damage, right? So they were brought into exile, and in the process, he was killed. So he was a good guy, but by virtue of the fact that he just happened to be around Jerusalem, you know, at the time of the exile, he ends up getting killed. And so this whole thing, the, you know, Isaiah 53, ends up being about the unjust suffering of the prophet. You know, how could this happen to such a good man? Uh, it was, and it's collateral damage. So if, you, if, uh, if you're familiar with Ben Shapiro, uh, the, the very popular conservative commentator, uh, he, he is an Orthodox Jew, and this is his interpretation. Um, here's why I don't think it holds water at the end of the day. So two big reasons. The, the subject of the poem is the revealing of the arm of the Lord, which refers to God acting in history. And specifically, all the context shows that this is God acting in history for salvation. So this passage isn't about the judgment of God's people. It's about their salvation. The, the prophet suffering as collateral to the nation's punishment, it doesn't fit at all. Because this isn't about the nation's punishment. It's about their salvation. So to make sense of the poem, the, the suffering of the servant has to lead to healing. That's essential. But secondly, it misses what people need saving from, right? So this, this whole idea of, of like the, the, the prophet suffering and Israel being taken away and, and that being, you know, so... 
what I'm trying to say is that that the in that whole idea of like the prophet suffering as collateral damage, the big problem that needs to be fixed is that the land got taken away. Okay. So what you would expect when you were reading Isaiah 53 is for the whole thing to be about the land being given back. And so the problem is land. It's a land problem. It's an exile problem. That's not what the passage is about though. Right? That's not what the passage is about. The whole passage is about spiritual renewal. The problem is sin. What they need is forgiveness. They need cleansing. They need spiritual healing. And so the servant is acting as their sacrifice to, to acquire that for them. So, so the servant isn't just suffering along with the nation. The servant is suffering for the nation. So it can't just be that the prophet is in the wrong place at the wrong time. The servant acts wisely, right? So he's acting intentionally. We talked about how he's strategizing for the people. So you get to the end of your Bible study of Isaiah 53 and you start looking around for an individual who stood in for Israel and suffered for the sake of all people, handed himself over as a guilt offering, was associated with the wicked and the rich in his death, and achieve salvation for the world. And there ends up not being a whole lot of candidates until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was the servant who acted wisely. Jesus was the one from whom men hid their faces. Jesus came to us without majesty and without beauty. Jesus bore our sorrows and our griefs. Jesus handed him, himself over to scorn and humiliation. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was oppressed but did not open his mouth into his defense. Jesus was counted with the, the wicked in his death and buried with the rich. And his generation said that he was getting what was coming to him. But it was the Lord's will to crush him. God himself put Jesus to grief. And Jesus was in on the plan. And as a result, the kingdom and the power and the glory have been handed over to him. He is the one superintending the end of human history. He is Messiah. And he has accomplished what Messiah does. Remember back to those three things we've talked about. In him, the kingdom of God was put on display, the reign of God. It was by him that a new people for God was constituted, not around a common culture, but around a common Christ, for Christ made himself common. And it is through him that the nations are now being gathered in, for it is the Lord's will that as many as possible might be a part of his kingdom. Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But when the angel first said those words to Mary, right, saying, about Jesus, he's going to be Emmanuel, God with, with us. There was no way that Mary could have known just how with us Jesus would become. He showed solidarity with us in our poverty, in our want, in our grief, in our wandering. He, he even, and this is the scandal of the gospel, he, God in the flesh, showed solidarity with us in our sin because he absorbed our punishment as though the sin was his. He became like us so that we might become like him. He took on the image of flesh so that we might be restored to the image of God. God represented humanity so humanity might once again represent God. As a final comment, it, it, it's, it sticks with me that most of this passage is spoken through the voice of witnesses. Witnesses who have themselves benefited from the, the servant's sacrifice. One of our values here at Trinity is the value of mission. And part of, part of what we believe it is to, to have a missionary posture is to be storytellers, that we're sent to be storytellers. And a lot of what that means is, is that we're sent to bear witness. So, so if we are followers of the man who turned out to be the suffering servant, if we are witnesses of God's salvation that came through him, um, then, then, then as witnesses, we're, we're, we're bearing witness to something that most people will not recognize as good news. That's what I'm trying to say, is that if we, are, if we are the witnesses in this passage, if we are the witnesses in this passage, then we're going to find ourselves, like the witnesses in verse 1 of chapter 53, saying, man, who's going to believe this, right? 
some will hear, and it will often be those who are low enough to realize the significance of God being made low. And of course, all of us should be in touch with that, with, with the scandal of God's grace, with the scandal of Christ's solidarity with us. And that should inform how it is that we share the gospel. Uh, in, a, in a recent lecture, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, he was, he was commenting on Christ's solidarity for us. He's a thinker I really appreciate, Rowan Williams. There, there are many things that, that we at Trinity and the elders at Trinity would disagree with him on. Um, you know, a number of different things. You know, both, both some ethical positions he's taken as, as well as um, you know, some ideas he has about soteriology, like the, uh, you know, the study of salvation. But I, I still really appreciate him as a thinker. He's very brilliant. And, and on this point, he is just dead on. So he's commenting on, on the cross, on, on Christ's solidarity with us. And he says that, that when we share Christ, here's a quote. He says, it isn't very meaningful or helpful to say God loves all people, even people like you. Right? He says, we think we're being inclusive when we say even you, rather than beginning with even me. Or, or, or simply us. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, identified with us. Jesus stood in for us. Jesus loves us. Jesus gave himself for us. And that changes everything. And that concludes the, the Advent series. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. It was certainly an encouragement to me. And... and um, Blessings be upon you as you, as you go out to, to bear witness, to bear witness to the, the work of the suffering servant. Love you all.